Welcome to episode 119 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, I would like to remind you, as I often do, that subscribing is the best way to make sure you never miss an episode of Stageworthy. And there are, as I always say, but it is true, there are some great episodes coming up, so trust me when I tell you that you don't want to miss them. So make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Music or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get every episode of Stageworthy delivered right to your device. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Asa the Tenekun, who appears in Canadian stages The Overcoat, starting March 27th and running until April 14th at Toronto's Bluma Appel Theatre. So I come from a theater background. Okay. I don't have a whole lot of an opera, opera background. Gotcha. May, I've seen a couple. Yeah. Um, but I'm, one of the things that I'm always fascinated by are the things that, that draw people to the performance art. And so what was your first exposure to opera and how did you decide that that's what you were going to do? Um, so I didn't see my very first full scale opera production until I was 22 when I started I started my undergrad a little bit later at okay. Indiana University but the way I kind of got into it was um, when I was younger I started off singing in the chapel choir at the school I went to in okay. Sri Lanka um, so I grew up in Sri Lanka I started singing in the chapel choir there and that's where I really started to love vocal music mm-hmm. it was choral music for the most part Anglican tradition, all of that. And that's where I first realized that music and singing was going to be a big part of my life. And then when I was 15, my mom uh, forced me to take voice lessons, private voice lessons. <laughs> Basically, I, I was kicking and screaming. I was like, no, I don't want to do it. Uh, but she said... She basically put her foot down and said I had to. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll go go in for one lesson. And that's it. And she was like, fine. Go in for one lesson. See if you like it. Whatever. And so I go in. And uh, the teacher who whom I went to, she had seen me perform at one a school event, basically. Mm-hmm. And had spoken to my mom and said, you know, if you ever want to send him in for lessons, I'd be happy to help out. She heard me. And... On that day, she took out uh, an application form for the concerto competition that the symphony orchestra in Sri Lanka sure. was holding. And it was the day before the the application date deadline. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sure, fill it out. Yeah, yeah. And, and I enjoyed the lesson, but I still didn't have an idea of, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. So mm-hmm. I was like, if you want to fill it out, fill it out. And... Uh, I kept going for lessons. I ended up winning that competition, the vocal category of that competition. I was 15 at this point, and um, it kind of took off from there as far Mm -hmm. as solo singing was concerned. Um, And I really haven't stopped doing it Mm -hmm. since then. 
Do you have a sense of what your mom, what your mother saw that made her decide that even though this child says that he doesn't want to do this, <laughs> that I'm going to make him go to this lesson? I played piano from okay. the time I was six years old, which again was thanks to my mom's influence. Mm -hmm. And because she's a piano teacher herself, but mm. she was smart enough to like <laughs> refuse to teach me because <laughs> <laughs> uh, she knew that I'd just be... <laughs> Just be a tough student, sure. being my mother and all that. But um, I think the feedback... Oh, hello. <laughs> Some extra sound effects. Yeah. <clears throat> the feedback she had received from people who'd heard me sing probably encouraged her mm. and gave her an idea of, okay, he's, you know, he has a good natural gift sure. that she would have liked me to, to uh, develop. And I think that's what kind of pushed her to to put her foot down and she also comes from a very musical background herself like i said mm. she's a, she's a piano teacher yeah and she was involved with that growing up and i think for her part too she had to work hard herself and fend for herself in a in a way to do all of the piano exams and all that she'd done so she sure. she'd had you know she'd worked really hard for it and i think she appreciated it and she really knew that knew that I was wasn't aware enough mm. to really appreciate whatever gift she saw was sure. that and I had. If it was your mother teaching you, you would have a very different relationship Maybe. than with a teacher that, that was not your parent. Probably. I think so, yeah. <clears throat> so hearing about about um your going you know, you, you went to the contest and then mm. this, that and the other thing, when did you fall in love with singing? Enough that it was going to become what you would go to study and you would make it your life. Right. It kind of happened in steps. So the chapel choir I was in, um, our choral director, uh, Mr. Bartholomew's, he was self-taught. Mm -hmm. And he had this amazing approach to how he, he taught us in the choir itself. He would always um, use whatever music we were singing and equate it to... To life events or, you know, everyday things that we would do and how we would express the music, he'd always draw from what we saw around. Um, there was one instance, I don't know why this is the first thing that comes to my mind, but um, just outside of the chapel, there was a quadrangle and they, they would um, mow, the, mow the grass on there and... Sometimes while we were rehearsing, we'd, we'd smell, you know, the grass being cut and all that. And he, he pulled from that and said, this section of the music needs to sound like you're taking in a breath of that and, and mm. like smelling in the... Mm. And just different things that resonated with me at the time. Mm. Um, he'd been doing it for years. Uh, he's probably one of the most beloved people who've ever, mm. who's ever taught there. Um, and he was, an, he was an English teacher as well. So he had that way with language and... Uh, he was really influential in my discovering music, but also discovering how to use language in in singing and vocalizing as well. Sure. Um, so, if you, where did you think that road was going to take you, and how did you like? You said that you what you like didn't discover opera until much later, and so how did you discover opera and decide to make that your focus? So, I'd sung a few arias from operas in my voice lessons and things like that but when i was when i finished high school i took some a few years off a year or so to kind of figure out what i wanted to do and 
living in Sri Lanka, being a musician, and especially a classical musician, would have been a hard profession to like to make a living mm-hmm. out of there. So lots of people who are musicians there, they either teach full-time or they have other professions, other um, jobs that, you know, are, that's their main focus. Mm-hmm. So I started doing a law degree, mm-hmm. um, and it was I did about a year of it. And a year into it, I decided if I'm going to be put in this kind of, you know, financial investment into my education, why don't I try auditioning for a few schools mm. overseas and see what happens if I get in, you know, mm-hmm. depending on if I can get some sort of scholarship and things like that. I was like, I'm, I'm going to regret this if I don't at least try because I know sure. that this is something that's important to me. My first love, if I had the option to even do it in Sri Lanka would have been to go straight into mm-hmm. music. And I was only doing the law because that was doing, becoming a professional musician wasn't mm-hmm. really an option. And so I sent in applications, auditioned for five schools in the U.S. and uh, got into Indiana University um, with an almost full scholarship. Mm-hmm. So that kind that was, that really opened my eyes to, okay, people kind of see that I'm capable of doing something, obviously. So, and that encouraged me a lot as well to be like, okay, this is where I'm mm-hmm. going to head in. And we had never had a full-scale opera performed in Sri Lanka, at least not during my lifetime <laughs> up to that point. So when I went in and my first, the, the first production I watched at Indiana University was Rigoletto. And um, it's, a, it's a massive opera school. With, they do six to seven productions a year, double cast, four performances each. So they... The sets were amazing. The costumes were amazing. And it, I still remember the, my first, the first thing I saw as soon as the music began with the curtains opening and this really extravagant set. And mm. yeah, that was that was definitely a moment. I was like, I'm I am where I feel mm. like I really belong. Yeah. So, had you when you uh, decided you were going to study law, did you have a passion for the law at all, or was that just the the thing that you were supposed to do? Um, it was a it was a topic a, a topic of interest for me. Mm, okay, I think when I finished my education, my my high school education, we have advanced level exams. So we have ordinary level exams, and then after that, for two and a half to three years, you study for your advanced level exams. Mm-hmm. And I was in the arts stream, sure. so lots of students in the arts stream end up getting into law or. Mm-hmm. Um, something else connected to um, to the arts even mm-hmm. but um, law was an option because I knew lots of musicians who were lawyers as well okay and I I was also uh, part of the debating team in school I had done a lot of you know drama and stuff like that and sure. debating especially was something that I found exciting mm. and I was really interested in and I was trying to find, okay, uh, this, these are my interests and this is what I like doing. Mm-hmm. What is a potential um, occupation that I could yeah. get into and law kind of made sense mm. for that reason. Yeah. Um, when you started going into, into, when you got to university, is there something that surprised you about, about the way that they taught singing? Was there something, a lesson that you had to learn or things that you had to unlearn? There were there was a lot. My first teacher there, uh, Brian Horn, he was so instrumental with kind of building up my technique. Because at that point, I'd just been singing and not really thinking a lot about technique. 
and he really broke it down for me and mm-hmm. uh, built my technique from scratch. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot I had to unlearn, but applying certain things, thinking about things in a different way, thinking about sensations, where my voice is coming from, where do I feel it resonate, how is it, you know, understanding that what I'm hearing while I'm singing is not the same thing that someone else mm-hmm. is hearing. So there was there was a lot of that that I had to get my head around. And I think... And the other side of it was how large the school was and how many singers there were and mm. hearing all these different voices and um, <laughs> the uh, all of the um, you hear the, what was it I can't remember how many students there were but definitely mm, more solo voices I'd heard yeah. than ever before in my life mm. and uh, even as a tenor that was where I learned oh, there, there's not just one kind of tenor voice. There's different fachs, if you will, within within each voice part, too, and trying to figure out, okay, so then where do I fit in? What does that mean for my voice? Um, so there was a lot to learn, and there was a lot to to explore, but it was a really great environment for that. Mm. Yeah. Um, the, the idea that, that what you are hearing as you're singing is not what other people are hearing, I think, is not something that I've really thought of before. And I think a lot of people, because they haven't been trained in that, have have not thought of that. Right. Um, how did that change the way that you sing? You learn how to go by sensation. Mm-hmm. And that's why for singers, it's very helpful, obviously, to have your voice teacher, you have your vocal coach, and you have, sometimes if you're able to, you have different people to go to for different repertoire mm-hmm. for um, if you have like if you're preparing an Italian piece you have sure. someone who's more who's stronger with that that you go to and sing for and so you start to learn and you record your lessons and all of that and so you listen back and try and remember okay at this point what were my sensations what was I doing with you know my soft palate how was that working because we use all that space inside to for resonance and everything and Learning to trust that, learning to trust the sensations mm. as opposed to what you're getting back. Okay. And that helps a lot, especially if we're singing. So we, we don't use microphones or anything no. when we sing. So if you're in a, in a hall that is heavily carpeted and you don't have any feedback whatsoever, right. it's easy to oversing if that's what you're listening for. You're listening, if you're listening for the resonance as opposed to feeling sure. the resonance, mm. that makes a huge difference. Okay. So. So, um, so you, from from Sri Lanka to the U.S. Right. to Canada, I went back home to Sri Lanka for about a year and a half okay. in between. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what was the what was the draw for Canada? What, what brought you back here? So after my undergrad, I went back to Sri Lanka because I hadn't been home in about three years. That's a good reason. To Plus, go yeah. yeah. Plus, I wasn't sure if. I wanted to continue on a career path mm. of voice because I think one of the other things I learned in my my studying in the States was how difficult the career itself is oh, sure. and how you know it takes time to build it up. As a tenor, as a male singer as well, your voice is going to mature a lot later. So do I have, can I take that? amount of time that's necessary you know <clears throat> mm-hmm. am i just going to be stuck without making anything 
and I, I went home to try and figure all that out, to try and figure mm-hmm. out what my next step was going to be. And uh, halfway through my time in Sri Lanka, after my after the States, um, was when I decided, okay, yeah, I'm going to go forward with this. I'm going to make it work somehow. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to continue studying because I wanted to have that background, uh, develop that background of having regular lessons, taking classes. But I also wanted to be in a place that was um, more of a city where I could work at the same time in singing. Sure. And that was one of the reasons I looked at Canada. Um, For for whatever reason, I still can't pinpoint why I didn't want to go back to the States. I wasn't, I didn't look like a place that I wanted to settle down. Sure. Eventually. So I was looking at that as well. And yeah, I ended up here at the Royal Conservatory at the Glen Gould School. Nice, nice. Um, they were extremely generous as well, um, gave me a full scholarship to be here. Mm-hmm. So nice. ended up here. Nice. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, as somebody, I mean, a lot of people who, who listen to the, the podcast are theater people. And we don't have a lot of visibility into what the life of an opera singer is like right. and why you might have had uh, some trepidation or worry about what a career after school might look like. What is what is what what does that look like? It's a it's different for everyone, and I'm I'm sure there's um, there's a lot that translates into mm-hmm. what um, theater students go through as well after they're done. It, you basically get into the whole hustle of auditioning, 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 mm-hmm. and you end up taking whatever jobs you can take to fill in the time, but then also trying to find the time to practice, sure. um, trying to find a space to practice in. Mm-hmm. Very often, you know, you have to have a piano or you, and you have to have a space where sometimes people don't like it if you practice in your apartment, your landlords don't like it or something like sure. that. So there's a lot of that that, ha- that needs to be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and even when you start off with the gigs, a lot of the gigs that you start off with right out, out of school aren't the best paying gigs. You start off, you do, you know, if someone is like, I'm doing this thing, would you like to be a part of it? You're like, yes. Because right. at that point, you haven't had any um, any singing projects. Sure. You've been like working at wherever, and then all of a sudden this thing comes up and you're like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it's a lot of balancing because it's like you want to have a steady income. But you also need to have a job that's flexible enough where they're like, okay, yeah, we'll let you go do this singing project that you sure. want to do. Um, so there's a lot of those challenges that come into it. So we're here. Um, you're, you, we mentioned earlier you're just like just this is the first day of tech for the overcoat with the, uh, right. with the Canadian stage. Um, and the overcoat is based on a short story by Nikolai Gogol. Gogol. Yeah. And... Um, I've read it. It was a long time ago that I read it. Um, so it's about a guy who finds an expensive coat right. and it changes his life until he loses it, which changes his life again. Is that, yep. is that, is that basically? Yeah, the, yeah. that would okay. basically be it. Um, had you, did, were you familiar with the story of the overcoat beforehand? Not really. We did a couple of uh, workshops mm-hmm. on the piece. So that was my first exposure to it. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, no. I didn't know anything about the story. Uh, had, were you familiar with with any of the? Had you heard of heard of Nikolai Gogol before? Nope. <laughs> I think that I don't think that's uncommon. Right. Um, he's not necessarily known outside of outside of Russia, except to some people who like absurdist 
things. And that's one of the things that he's kind of known for. Yeah. Is <clears throat> sort of an absurdist look at, um, well, the world. Um, and you're playing, you're playing the, uh, the, the manager, manager and also the secretary to uh, the important personage. Okay. And uh, what, do, what does the manager do in, uh, in, in, in the play? What, uh, what so is... my arc is basically I'm, I'm the manager of this department, but there's mm -hmm. someone else who's above me as well, the boss, uh, the head of the department, if you will. And... For the manager, he's this guy who's r trying to control everybody, but also trying to make sure people aren't doing more work than is necessary in the sense of um, his relationship with Akaki, mm -hmm. um, our protagonist, is that, you know, Akaki loves numbers and he loves to work on them and he does a lot of work at the department. And so my character's like, you working, you doing all this work makes us look really yes, horrible yes. so what's the deal and um so he kind of tries to rule these four people under him with an iron fist mm -hmm. but also is very beholden to the head of the department sure um that's basically the manager's um mm. kind of how how his entrance is set up sure for the piece and that's that's kind of like i mean that's the gogol was writing during czarist uh, Russia at a time of uh, great bureaucracy and where status was everything. So right. it would have been very important for the manager to make sure that he kept his status and everybody below him could not rise above him right. because he could not rise above the people above him. So it was very, very tenuous. Exactly. Hmm. And there's also a very, keeping along, like going along with that mindset, there's a very Groundhog Day sort of. Mm. Um, feeling to it too so you see all these people going about their lives but it's always the same day sure. and everyone has a place in society everyone has the things that they are expected to do nothing more nothing less than that mm -hmm. and that to me is how why it's so interesting to see this character um akaki mm -hmm. who's kind of he's the only person on stage you see has like a love for something and uh, wants to explore his love for numbers his love mm -hmm. for for the work he does um i think it's set up really well and i think morris does a has done a really great job with how he's he's come up with the libretto for it and sure. uh, james the composer uh it's so amazing i i still remember when i was preparing the music for the first uh, workshop mm -hmm. i would listen to it like then play it out and I'd be like this is there's some really weird things in here and you meet morris for the first time mm -hmm. and you're like oh all the quirks make sense <laughs> this is yeah and it's amazing that james i think has been able to get in like he's basically laid out in music form what i feel is going on in morris's head hmm. when he thinks about how he wanted this scene to go how he wanted you know sure. this scene to be the arc of each scene to go hmm. so and how long how long i mean you, you mentioned that there have been some workshops of this before. right so how long have you been working have you been involved in the production i've been involved with this for about i want to say about a year and a half mm. on and off so we do a week of workshops mm -hmm. um i think the first 
workshop that I was involved in, it was just all music. We just went through the music, sang through it, and worked on, you know, what could be, we change what could, you know, how, what could be developed even more. Mm-hmm. And then the second workshop, which must have been a few months or a year after that, was with Morris. Mm-hmm. And we staged a few scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thereafter, it was here that mm-hmm. we started working on it as yeah. a production itself. Um, the 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 show as a whole started off um, in 2014 when Morris was a part of Lib Lab with Tapestry Opera. Mm-hmm. And Lib Lab is this thing they do over uh, the course of a few days where they put librettists together with composers. Mm-hmm. They have to come up with a certain number of, of scenes in a very limited amount of time. And... I, I hope I'm getting this story correct, but what um, Morris was working with a composer who had to leave at, on the last day or something like that, and James, who was mentoring some of the composers, decided, okay, I'll step in and work with Morris. And that's when Morris was like, I kind of want to see if I can use one of these scenes from from the overcoat that he'd mm-hmm. done uh, at that point, probably 16 years prior. Mm-hmm and work on a libretto for it and see how that scene would come up and I think it's the scene between the tailor and the tailor and his wife and Akaki that he that they put together and uh, when they performed it at the end of that Lib Lab session I think that's when uh, Michael Mori at Tapestry Opera saw it and he, he thought this needs to be made into full scale opera it's interesting because well, the first time I, I heard that uh, uh, Ken Stage was was doing the overcoat. I remembered the the production from sixteen years ago, right. or however long twenty. I think at, at this point, I, I think I'm not sure. People talking about a very physical piece, and everybody I knew just just having their minds blown about like this just simple choreography and all this movement and things like that. And that seemed yeah. to be what people people were were talking about in my circles anyway. Right, <clears throat> and I wondered. Uh, when I first heard what the connection was between the two, and it, it figures that it's it's Morris um, trying to take it take it further. Right. Um, so I think that a lot of people don't think of opera as as funny. Right. And um, Gogol is almost always funny. Um, because that's the best way to show the the ridiculousness and the tragedy of of Russian life uh, that right. he's trying to get across. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, there are comedic operas like The Merry Wives of Windsor and and, and others. Um, what was your what's your reaction to the com- the comedy in in the Overcoat? <clears throat> I think with the reason. Just to take a step back from it, there's obviously a very, you know, stereotypical response from the larger public to opera itself, and we always see it as very serious, right? Exactly, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that you know there are these people singing endlessly, singing using huge voices on stage. And often not in English, which is something that they can right. separate, right? Often not in English. And also, I think from the part of the performers, sometimes what gets lost is this idea of being present and telling a story on stage. Mm. Because there's so much 
uh, focus on the singing and sure. you know I want to make sure all like everything coming out of my my mouth is perfectly in place that the the resonance is just where it needs to be yeah. that the beauty is there and so there's a lot of that that gets lost that becomes secondary uh, which I think I'm finding working with a lot of the indie opera companies mm. in Toronto there's a lot that they're focusing on changing that attitude towards it mm. to making the vocal stuff is always going to be important. Yes. But trying to make, you know, telling a story, making sure it's everyone is present, making sure there's reactions on stage, which sounds stupid to say. You know, it's but. it's funny because I remember when I was when I, years ago when I was in theater school, there was uh, a gentleman who was staying in the house that I was in. He'd just come in for a little while. He was working for a little while with the Canadian Opera Company. Okay. And he came back from his first day of rehearsal. And he was like, well... This guy, he has a great voice, but we are going to have to tell him how to move everything because he is just a rod on stage, which I, I think speaks to how at the time people were, the, like opera was performed without um, acting, without reacting and without right. uh, uh, There's the, interaction. There's this whole thing called park and bark mm. that we use for fun <laughs> hopefully for fun in opera where it's like you know you have this big thing to sing so you're going to stand in one place make sure your body is aligned everything's set and you, you're just going to do mm. that and I, I don't think there's I don't think there's been any room for that in the last so many years for good reason because you know that's not interesting no because if you're singing if you have a beautiful voice great if you're singing and your breath control and all that is amazing, great. But that's only going to keep an audience sure. captured. For I like, mean, that's the kind of thing. Like, if I wanted to hear that as an audience member, there are plenty of recordings that I can go exactly. to where I can hear that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the things that maybe, which is one of the what's important about the, the indie opera companies with an emphasis on this, is to change the way that people are thinking about opera. I think Toronto's. That, that's one of the things that I see very special about Toronto mm-hmm. is the fact that you have all these um, smaller companies yeah. trying to change what opera is, trying to change the boundaries of it. Mm-hmm. And especially with this show, like it's not just an opera. Sure. It's not just a theater production. It's not just a movement piece. Mm-hmm. It's something, the most exciting thing for me about it is that it doesn't fall into any of these, sure. these boxes. And they're creating something new. I mean, you don't have these large arias that one person just sings forever and ever that you would find in opera. There's all these moving parts. One of the challenges, I think, for the singers has been trying to incorporate all the movement into it, trying to make sure we move on this beat. It's funny, Morris mentioned in, in rehearsal a few days ago, you know, he was like, in the same way that you would learn... The, the perfect note at the perfect time so that it comes out you sing the right note at the right time that's how specific I want all of you to be with your movements so that if you're going to move your hand it needs to be at this spot that we've decided on and to mm-hmm. just concentrate on that which is a new thing for for, sure. for opera singers I think is we think about that specific, uh, specificity with the music mm-hmm. but never not always with our movement has that been a difficult thing to incorporate? Not particularly difficult. It's it's a new thing. Mm. Uh, Wendy's working on Wendy Gorling is working with us on a lot of the movement mm-hmm. stuff, and she really makes sure we get we get um, 
up our movement down exactly where it needs to be and it's been really eye-opening for me working with her as well and we have a couple of guys who were on the original overcoat um colin heath and courtney stevens mm-hmm. just watching them in every scene they're in they they have no vocal part mm. they, they're in there but they're so on the money every single time oh. and um i think that's one of the exciting things about regular theater that i would love to see come into into the opera mm. world um did, did did you personally have difficulty with with the movement or or not really no, that's good. um you know you get a note from Wendy or Morris mm-hmm. and then you if you're not on stage or not in the in the scene you kind of work on it while they're off it you write it down sure. and you kind of explore your different aspects of how you would um and like every good director um what Morris and Wendy have asked us for specific kind of this is what I want this is the kind of thing I want you to do, but they've also given us the freedom to explore within that. Mm. Okay, how would, how would, what's the best way that would work for me? Mm. Um, no, I, I, it's been, if I had to call it a challenge, it's been the best kind of challenge. Mm. And that's, that's the environment you want to be in. That's sure. the kind of environment you want to work in. Yeah. That's why this stuff is so exciting is you're pushing your own boundaries mm-hmm. and you're discovering new things for yourself yeah. and having all that feedback from the people in, you yeah. know, who, are, who are directing as well. But it, it, because uh, it's difficult to think of, of this as opera because I think that's not something that I think of for Canadian stage. Like when I think of Canadian stage, I don't think, ah, oh, opera. Right. I don't even usually even think, ah, oh, musicals or right. anything like that. So that, yeah. it sort of makes it an interesting and... Uh, different uh, aspect of the Canadian stages. Season. Yeah, I hope, I hope by the end of the run that mm-hmm. people will learn to look at because there is this idea of okay, this is what opera is. Sure, and this is very different from any opera that mm. I would ever have attended. Mm. But it still falls into that genre in a broad, broader sense as well while also um, expanding the boundaries of what opera is. Mm. And I, I hope people go away with it thinking, you know, opera isn't this thing where we have to dress up and know something about the show before going into mm. it and all that. Um, yeah. I would really hope so. I mean, for myself, that's always been a barrier to to going to opera is like... It seems all very serious and formal, and 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 that if I don't have a clean suit, that I'll be staring. Right. Like, what will be the reaction? Like it's just so it seems like a foreign thing. Yeah. Um, because I've worked with a few of the indie opera companies, mm-hmm. I can say, you know, a lot of them do their performances sometimes. Like, there's a labo M that's done in a bar mm-hmm. or in different settings and um that's made it much more accessible Mm. you know you can go and just wearing jeans and a shirt get a beer Mm. get in an opera (laughs) um done sometimes done in english Mm. where you know they've translated it and they've um done it that way as well and there's a lot of that that's changing that i'm really excited about Mm. well because it's interesting because that's the that's the other thing is is um, I've heard some people, and I don't even know if this is true, 
But they've said, oh, you know, even if you speak Italian and you go to an Italian opera, you won't have a clue what they're saying and things like that. But um, in, in translating to English, does that remove the need for surtitles and things like that? Or? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think it's more immediate mm. when, you, when you have it in English. Of course, you, you have – I've come across really bad translations, sure. translated versions, but I've come across some very good ones as well. Because if you have the surtitles, sorry, if you have the surtitles, you have, you know, you usually have the entire line while this guy's still singing it. Mm -hmm. So that immediacy of what the music does mm. is kind of lost because sure. I already know what he's going to say. Yeah. Whereas when it's in English, you're not necessarily following the surtitles, even if they have them, because you, you can actually understand sure. and you can watch what's going on on stage and that immediacy of being in the, the exact second a certain word comes out, you know, you're there with the person who's singing. Sure. Yeah. Like, for example, if you see something like a, a Stephen Sondheim musical, which often is sung through, yep. um, you don't need the, the surtitles because you can follow along and exactly. experience it with the characters. So you don't need that. Right. Yeah. Um, is there something that, that you're particularly excited about for an audience to see what you've been, this, this thing? Is there anything that, that like really excites you? There are so many moments in this piece that I think are very cool. Mm. Um, it's always working. It's like a clock. I mean, you, if you're watching the show from start to finish, there's something that's always moving. Mm. And I, th I find that fascinating, especially as an opera singer, because traditionally it's, okay, you sing your thing, you're done. You're still present in the scene, but whoever else is singing their aria, they take the spotlight. Sure. You, you don't do anything to kind of do too much. Whereas here, you know, someone's singing, the story's still going on, there's a lot happening, mm -hmm. there's so many other characters on stage. And it's like, it's more like watching something happening in reality, but with the frame of the absurdist kind sure. of mind, mindset to it as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for people to see how They've taken, you know, what was done 20 years ago. Mm. And what I love is that they haven't, Morris and Wendy haven't tried to replicate right. what's happened. Mm. Uh, they were extremely clear from day one that they wanted to take it and make it something new, mm. something where, where they incorporate the music, they incorporate opera singers, they incorporate the movement, but come up with something that is brand new mm. to compared to what they, they did earlier <clears throat> I mean uh, I can see the temptation I mean I would be tempted to be like I'm, I kind of just want to do what we did before but right. and it takes a certain amount of, uh, of bravery to go we have new like everything is new we can't possibly do what we did before so let's right. throw it open um, but still sort of like have elements uh, of that exactly um, it sounds from the way that it's being that you're describing it that um, there's a certain amount of spectacle to watching this, just with the constant movement and, and things like that. Um, which I think is not particularly something that people expect. I mean, an opera, often they're known for like the lavish set. Right. But often the idea that I have is people come out onto this set and they stand there and they watch somebody else sing and then it's the chorus's turn and they'll do some movement and then they stop and things like that. Right. And that lends itself obviously to this story mm -hmm. in particular as well because there are there's all these things that are always happening yeah. 
And I think the fact that you have this one character, Akaki, in the middle of all the regular bustle of life, Mm -hmm. having his own story. Um, But that is something new for me, and I think for the rest of the cast, too, as opera singers, is we can't ever... This sounds very silly to say, but we can't ever switch off mm. because there's always oh this I'm I'm supposed to take this table over here now sure. this table needs to go off I mean it's not just a okay take the table out stage left you're still taking the you know there's a very specific movement involved with your character mm. and Wendy's really she's done an amazing job bringing in specifics to okay your character would not go and move this this way Mm. and there's always you know there's a very circular element to everything and how everything happens Mm. um and i can't i can't wait to try and incorporate some of that into my work on you know a full-scale regular opera Mm. um which is one of the things i've learned a lot about in this process for this show so you think that that like that Working on this show has has changed the way that you might approach another oh, show. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There isn't as much involvement for um, the other characters on the stage, usually. I, I don't want to speak in general terms. I'm sure, sure there's an opera director somewhere who's done this. But where, you know, someone's singing and they have the main sort of um, focus of the audience and all of that. But the the other people in the background aren't really doing a whole lot. So here it's like my character's still invested in doing these other things in the background and mm. doing all of that. And it sounds it sounds silly saying it, but it's not... It, there are lots of aspects of it that are new in the sense of I'm not only making this character my own through my vocal singing, I'm also making this character my own in the way I physicalize him, in the way I sure. move my body. And that's something that doesn't often get talked about in opera because your physical body and your physical presence and your posture, all of that needs to be a certain way in order to produce sound sure. in a healthy in a healthy manner. Um, but I think we can afford to play around a little bit within that mind, that's, that setting of, okay... As long as I'm sure that my body is the way I need it to be to feel comfortable, I can still play around with other aspects of my character in a physical sense. Um, that, in my experience, doesn't always happen. Has, has that has like finding those the, the balance between the that that physical presence, the posture, and the movement of the character been like uh, a challenge? Was that a new thing to try to play with? <clears throat> it was a fairly new thing for me to to play with. There was one character um, I play. Um, a doctor at the towards the end of the show, and there was a certain physicality that um, Wendy wanted me to play around with, which I found was constricting for me vocally because I had to kind of scrunch my shoulders sure. up in, and um, that was that felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I talked to her, and, and she was really helpful with trying to help me find something that still brought out what she wanted from the character, but also. Sure in a way that felt comfortable for me, felt comfortable mm. for me vocally as well. Um, which is another, you know, interesting thing. It's kind of, you, you learn where your body's boundaries are for mm. the important thing, which is the singing, but also making sure that 
the presentational aspects of the acting and the, the character aren't, aren't lost in the process. Hmm. Hmm. It sounds like oh, it's been a, a lot of... Like, how long has this rehearsal process been for this? We started on the 27th of... What month is it? We started on the 27th of February, I okay. think, I believe, yeah. So it'll be almost a month. Well, more, yep. than, more than a month. Yeah, just about a month, yeah. yeah. Um, is that normal for a, for an opera? About a, I would say uh, four okay. to five weeks is usually hmm. usually how much time we have to put something up. I mean, speaking from a, a theater world where it's often like two weeks and you're up. Right. Which, and how many times have been like, oh, if we only had two more weeks. Yeah. You know, to yep. have that. What... Um, what is happening at those rehearsals over the month? So, usually you'd have a lot of those rehearsals in the first week be music rehearsals, sure. where you're just going through the music, um, singing it. And that's, it's been a little different with this because we've had a chance to work with uh, Les Dalla, our, our conductor, mm-hmm. before in the workshop. So, we already know what he's looking for um, with some of the phrases in the music with his ideas. But usually we'd have about a few days, two to three days of music rehearsals mm. where we sing through it and then we go section by section and the conductor will be like, okay, I want you to do this with this phrase, kind of work on that. And then we'd get into staging. Mm. With this, it's been a little different because we've already had some of the music beforehand mm-hmm. um, and worked with Les beforehand in the, in the workshops and um, that process. So we started staging day one. Oh, nice. Um, and because there's so much movement involved, there's, you know, um, Jeff Surratt, um, our lead, he's who's doing an amazing job. Uh, it's just inspiring watching him. He's in every scene. Oh, wow. But there's also other people involved. There, there are people who don't even say anything, but they come on stage, they do something, and then they go off stage. Mm. So because of all that involvement, um, it was it was important for us to to start staging day one. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Are you are you on social media on the web at all? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Can you share your, oh, your, sure. your Twitter handle? Um, my Twitter handle is pl- probably Asita Tenekun. A S I T H A T E N N E K O O N. I believe. <laughs> I tried to make everything my name, which would be the easy That's way helpful. for me to remember it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Instagram as well. Yeah. Uh, oh, do you have a website or no? no? Well, okay. I uh, I'm on my agent's website. Okay. Kathy oh, Domini. Awesome. Yeah. DominiArtists.com. Great. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Today. Thank you. Thanks for yeah. Thanks for having me thank over you. here to chat about it. <laughs> <laughs>